0: Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on your VOCM. Now, here's your host, Dr. Mike Wall.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. And today we're going to talk about something that's pretty important to me. Uh, We're going to talk cancer. I lost my father to cancer. I recently lost one of my best friends to cancer. And it's something that affects a lot of Canadians. There's actually stats that show that 225 1,000 Canadians are going to get cancer this year and 83,000 people will pass away from it. During our lifetime, one in two Canadians are going to get diagnosed with cancer and one in four of us will die from the disease. It increases our risk with age, but it can happen at any age to us. And we're still seeing a lot of cancers that are directly related to lifestyle. Things like lung cancer constituting 25% of death in, in, in the country from cancer. So With us today to talk about the subject, couldn't get two better people, we have Dr. Stephen Quigley. He is a liver and pancreatic surgeon at Eastern Health. He trained for medical school at Memorial University and did a residency in surgery at the University of Calgary, and then did a liver and pancreas surgery specialty at IU Health in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's now doing a master's degree in patient safety and healthcare quality at John Hopkins this September. Thanks for being on the show, Steve.
0: No problem. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. All right, and with him
1: is Dr. Matt Falwell. He went to Queen's University and then did his medical school at uh, Western University, did a residency in Toronto at Princess Margaret Hospital, followed by a fellowship at the BC Cancer Agency. He is now the chief of oncology at Simcoe Muskoka Regional Cancer Program in Barrie, Ontario, and he happens to be my cousin. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Mike. Pleasure. Guys, we're going to talk about cancer today, but before we get into that conversation, you know, we need to address what's going on in the world right now. Um, Even if our conversations about cancer today... I do wanna talk about some of the disparities that exist in the world and have come up recently. And I've seen these disparities when it comes to opportunities for certain vulnerable populations in the world of wellness. And it might also exist in medicine. You know, I'm gonna acknowledge first of all that I can't fully understand this because it's not a lived experience for me. And we really wanna recognize that there may be some systemic issues with healthcare access with, with people of color in particular with indigenous populations uh, here in Newfoundland, and, and Matt, you may have seen this in your work uh, uh, when you studied in different parts of the country and in your work Ontario. And so I want to use the radio platform today for the first part of the show just to share about some of the disparities that can impact Canadians in adverse ways, particularly when it comes to their health. It, this sort of came to mind with me when I saw what was happening with COVID-19, in particular in the U.S., where we saw that, that uh populations like uh, the black or people of color or indigenous populations tend to have worse health
2: outcomes when it comes to diseases. Matt, have you ever experienced anything like that in your work? Well, I think there's a really, pieces of a literature in that, Mike, uh, especially primarily here in Canada for our indigenous populations. Uh, and I think it nailed it right in the head. It, it's a matter of um, access. It's a matter of primary care in a lot of cases in terms of the initial diagnosis and screening. Uh, And then, obviously, socioeconomic barriers uh, that people are uh, living uh, and breathing every day, and it's something where, again, access to care and access to primary care is is key, but also some of the social determinants of health really do provide actual risk factors to developing certain cancers. So, So what would be some of
1: these risk factors that we would see in different populations?
2: Right. Other than purely an access issue, meaning people don't have access to family physicians or nurse practitioners for the primary care, uh, they can often fall through the cracks of the screening programs uh, when it comes down to it in terms of mammography. People that don't have good access for uh, family practitioners in primary care also don't get their pap smears done, which is one of the few screening mechanisms we have that actually improves survival outcomes and improve time and time again. Um, the same with colonoscopies, all the general screening Is a lot harder if you don't have someone navigating that. And especially with regards to our Indigenous populations, there's often a disconnect between uh, more traditional uh, healing and traditional care um, that's just not there in terms of bridging that gap between uh, Western medicine for uh, a lot of folks, and uh, especially in our neck of the woods here, it's uh, a relatively large population uh, between the local reserves here. And uh, it's something that uh, is continuing, trying to find different ways to help people navigate through that system. Uh, With the Cancer Centre, we have a, um, and common to quite a few different cancer centres, actually an Indigenous Navigator program uh, where people can self-identify of different backgrounds uh, when they register uh, for their appointments and even prior to, uh, that helps hopefully bridge some of those gaps.
1: Yeah, that's right. And Canada has uh, doesn't categorize its, its patient health records typically by racial background and things like that, and that helps with care and, and avoiding bias. But at the same time, it can also um, uh, assist sometimes in, in making sure that people get the, the proper care uh, that they that they need when they may be a vulnerable population. So that's a good point, Matt. Um, what are some of these socioeconomic factors particularly? like? How do they impact people in their decision to go forward with cancer treatment or get access to health care?
2: Yeah, so just a purely basic ability to have enough funds to a to come to the center it's not nearby they may have to be in a car some people don't have a car they don't have a cab like it's not within reach with them there are certain funds available but that's limited and people don't necessarily know how to access so people will make decisions about their health care based on literally being able to take time off work to come um there's a very good study in newfoundland is one of the big access ones in terms of getting a cancer center and getting their linear accelerators placed there um, was that people were making decisions surgically about getting a mastectomy versus having a a breast conserving approach based on not being able to take the time off for the radiation afterwards. So there's all sorts of those sorts of little barriers, um, which are big barriers for people. And Mm -hmm. anyone that's relatively comfortable and stable economically and in their household, don't even think about that when they're making their decisions about their health. They're thinking about their health and the best care. Uh, the best care is there. It's whether or not we can get people uh, it, to access it.
1: Right. And that's, and that's something that's near and dear to me. I, I um, sit on the board for the Canadian Cancer Society, and we have Daffodil Place here where some people can be flown in to go through their cancer treatment and support them during a really trying time. It's both trying for their, their health but also financially for a lot of people as
2: they go through this, uh, this dramatic shift in their life. Exactly. And I think one of the, the bigger navigating aspects of it is often taken up um, by our social work team. Um, they're pros at making sure people get the forms they need, uh, so they can get long-term disabilities, they can get uh, convalescent care, that people can be at home taking care of their uh, loved ones as primary caregivers, um, which as a system is really what you want. Uh, you want people to be at home, to be closer to home for their care, and to be with the people they want to be with. Uh, Steve,
1: have you seen this in Newfoundland in particular?
0: Uh, You know, I think I have. I mean, I've only been in practice about uh, two years now, but I've certainly recognized that amongst people that live uh, in more rural parts of the island uh, of Newfoundland and Labrador, certainly there is a delay uh, in uh, diagnosis for a lot of these patients. Um, oftentimes, there's a lack of access to diagnostic imaging, such as CT scans and ERCP, which is a procedure reform to diagnose pancreatic cancer, as well as MRIs. And often people have to travel a significant amount of distance just to have these tests performed. And I think that ultimately, this leads to a delay uh, in cancer diagnosis. In particular, uh, I'm, you know, I work around pancreatic cancer, and I think patients, uh, certainly, see a delayed diagnosis uh, based on their simply based on their location away from Saint John's.
1: Right, and, and, and Newfoundland as well. I mean, one of the ways that our population is going to grow is through migration, uh, and there is actually a medical term called the health immigrant effect. And what happens typically when people come to Canada, their health is better than the average Canadian, but as they become a visible minority, their health tends to deteriorate and. Um, some of the, the theory around that is that they have difficulty navigating the healthcare system. That's not something that, uh, that's new to them. Uh, Matt, have you mm-hmm. seen this
2: in, in, in Barry? Well, I, I think it's the same, it, whether it's a uh, new population or, or underserviced people as it is already. Um, the, the navigation portion of it is, is huge, um, especially if you don't have that primary care uh, provider that can do at least the start of that to make sure everything's, or properly getting uh, people into the system so they get efficient access to uh, investigations, as Steve said. It's something where when things need to move quickly in the system, they can, but people need to know uh, or at least have someone helping them through that process. Um, the lack of efficiency and the lack of access um, really is huge to a vast majority of people and relatively a uh, simple way of intervening and helping uh, through that system would make a huge difference for
0: the vast majority of people.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and Steve in Newfoundland, are you seeing this on the on the, the surgical side of cancer?
0: Oh, for sure. Um, you know, only about 20 or 25% of people that I see on average, I'm able to offer, you know, an operation for in terms of the liver and pancreas side of things. Um, and certainly I think we, we definitely reach those numbers, but when I look back through and, talk with patients about their journey to diagnosis. I certainly identify multiple uh, points along the way where they uh, could have been picked up. A classic example would be someone who develops new diabetes in the community um and that's often a a huge red flag for onset of pancreatic cancer um mm-hmm. and then on t- on times multiple months can pass uh by and then a pancreatic cancer only gets inadvertently picked up on a CT scan maybe performed for something else um and so this is just sort of you know alluding to sort of to the points uh Matt uh, mentioned before about um you know access uh delays in diagnosis uh, and those sorts of things, yeah,
1: and that that brings us to a good a really good point there is that you know even with access, people are still facing significant challenges when it comes to uh, cancer. Uh, like I said before, my father uh, was late diagnosed with, with cancer, and by the time they found it, it was stage four. And that's what we're going to do for the next part of the show, is we're going to talk about you know, what cancer is one oh one, What are all the questions people have? Let's, let's talk about some of the definitions, some of the terms they're going to hear so that they can really help navigate their own health and improve their own health literacy. Guys, we're going to jump to break, but I'm here with Dr. Matthew Falwell. He's an oncologist, and Dr. Stephen Quigley, who's a cancer surgeon. We'll be right back after this break.
0: The Health and Wellness Show will be be right back on your vocm Woo! now back to dr mike wall this is the health and wellness show Woo! on your vocm
1: welcome back to the show i'm here with dr steve quickly he is a liver and pancreatic surgeon at eastern health and dr matthew falwell he is the chief of oncology at the Simcoe muskoka regional cancer program in barry ontario guys we're going to talk now about what cancer is um can you uh Steve, explain to me, what is cancer? And and we hear different definitions of what it is, but can you explain like from the top level, how does it work in the body?
0: I mean, you know, I think uh, the way that I think of cancer is just an abnormal growth of cells that eventually, in my scenario, it forms into sort of a mass or a lesion that presents itself within an organ system, you know? So, We know from the biology of cancer with regard to colorectal cancer, for example, that often cancer starts as a small polyp, and over the course of 8 to 10 years, it becomes an actual cancerous lesion with cells that can then go to the lymph node and metastasize to other aspects of the body. This sort of way of thinking about cancer, I think, can be included into all types of cancer, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer. That's kind of the way that I think about cancer, oftentimes, In my area of expertise, um, when I see people with a new diagnosis of cancer, often they come in with weight loss, uh, often usually quite significant, and they also come in with jaundice. So because they have a mass within their liver and biliary system, their liver is unable to uh, process bile, and that results in their skin turning yellow. And oftentimes Mm. people present with painless jaundice, which uh, is there their initial reason for entering the emergency department you know i can i can count you know if i had a nickel for every single time i heard somebody say you know i just woke up one morning and i was yellow and my you know my wife or my partner said you're yellow and we came into the emergency department and that's really their first introduction to the healthcare system they had been feeling reasonably well up until that point when you pry and dig around you find some underlying issues maybe some vague abdominal pain or some unintentional weight loss but truly when i encounter things it's at a at a level of obstruction for lack of a better mm-hmm. term
1: right so it's actually
2: developed uh, it's presenting physically almost and matt what about yourself you see all types of cancer my uh focus is in gi cancers as well breast cancer and primary uh, brain tumors. Obviously, depending on where things are, they present differently, and we often, as Steve rightly said, we often see the the end result of a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things. You don't come to a head until we often have a diagnosis before they get to see an oncologist. Often, one of the things, uh, as well, like I mentioned before, in terms of just basic barriers to care, it has a lot to do with the screening. Um, especially of new newcomers to Canada and new uh, populations or even populations that are not necessarily, that, that are marginalized to some degree. Um, the, the screening that goes on is very different uh, for folks like that. Um, we've set up, and again, especially with our Indigenous populations, there's a, a historic trauma associated with anything uh, Western and trying to engage uh, so that we have Uh, Real true access for people is very tough sometimes. There's a geographic issue associated with it. We need to be able to provide that care in their communities or in communities as opposed to uh, really forcing them to have to go somewhere. We've started up pap smear screening clinics uh, at all the uh, Indigenous populations here uh, in Simcoe County, uh, which has gone on for the last year or so. But prior to that, it just wasn't happening. Um, So people present with much more uh, advanced disease and without appropriate screening, you you do end up presenting at a later stage and outcomes are almost always going to be worse. Right. And and Steve, I mean,
1: the rural population we have in Newfoundland and Labrador, that screening access has got to be difficult as well, which like that would be the type of challenges that we would face with Newfoundlanders. So how do people get educated around avoiding getting cancer? Like what's one of the challenges we're facing here at
0: home? You know, I mean, I think that's a really uh, interesting question. I think, you know, to to begin, I would say that I, I think there is, as I've kind of mentioned before, a delay to diagnosis. And the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes people need to come down and have special tests done. Maybe the weather's bad. You know, if you're coming from somewhere in Labrador, uh, maybe, you know, the fly, the planes aren't uh, able to fly for a couple of days. And you have jaundice in a community up there that... Goes on for a number of days before you can kind of come down and see someone here or uh, within St. John's or nearby, and I think does that uh, change the long-term sort of diagnosis? Probably not, but at the end of the day, it's all about you know access to access to care, and uh, certainly if you don't have these diagnostic capabilities at your center, then you're relying on coming somewhere else to get them done. And every delay counts when it comes to, you know, when it comes to certain types of cancer, for sure. And as they sort of add up and sort of build and kind of snowball on each other, you can see how over time that leads to a very lengthy process.
1: Right. And that's, that's what really this talk is about today, guys. A lot of people, this is very confusing to them. It's very scary. And a lot of times when we're facing something that's scary, we tend to ignore it because we hope it doesn't exist. So that's really what we're going we're gonna to keep on chatting about
2: here. So we talked about a few things, but what are some of the most deadly forms of cancer, Matt? Just in terms of by the numbers, uh, you mentioned lung cancer. Obviously, in terms of the overall contribution to the mortality from cancer, uh, the, the top cancers would still be breast colon, prostate lung cancer. It's, it's something where incidence of certain cancers related to uh, things like HPV, for example, have been on the increase, uh, both cervix cancer, but also now head and neck cancer. But the, the big four really drive that still. Obviously, skin cancer is part of that, but it's often uh, more localized, type of issue tied to the things like melanomas. Um, but um, overall, outcomes is, is still probably more related to, uh, to, to lung cancer primarily
1: hmm And, okay, so, uh, Steve, on the same thing, so some of those cancers that we just heard have had some success at, mm-hmm. at, you know, making them less fatal than they used to be. How have the survival rates changed for these for these diseases? Because I know you deal with pancreatic cancer, which is one right. of the most deadly. So I mean, how think- do survival rates change? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of colorectal cancer, because I, I, I can speak to, you know, lung and melanoma to like, you know, mostly that's the surgical oncologists at my group that deal with most of those uh, patients. And then the thoracic surgeons are really the true lung experts in terms of colorectal cancer. I mean, I think our ability to treat colorectal cancer with chemotherapy uh, and chemotherapy that works. Has been huge. We're starting to understand the genetic basis of the disease and the genetic mutations of the disease, and then being able to tailor different chemotherapy options to that, which I think is great. In terms of, you know, when you talk about colorectal cancer, oftentimes it metastasizes or moves to the liver as its next next stage of development, and that's basically Mm -hmm. a blood flow issue. The colon's blood supply goes through the liver, and because tumor cells are within the blood supply, they seed into the, into the liver. Uh, but we've made great strides in our ability to resect uh, liver metastases uh, from colorectal cancer and really push the envelope in terms of how much liver we can resect and combine that with our chemotherapy uh, to come up with a treatment plan that works. In right. with regards to pancreatic cancer, I think we still have a long way to go. The five-year overall survival rate about a decade, a decade and a half ago was somewhere between 3 and 5%. At the most recent meeting I was at in uh, Miami of this year, the international hepatobiliary meeting, they say that the five-year overall survival now is 9%. So we've doubled our overall survival in a decade, but we still have a long way to go. The goal mm-hmm. of the group is to approach 20% by Uh, within the next sort of 10 years. And really what that's going to come down to is finding a chemotherapy that works and being able to diagnose this disease earlier. So until we have some sort of a serum biomarker and by that, I mean a blood test that can give us um, some indication that there's cancer going on within the, within the system before you become obstructed with jaundice and present to an emergency department or your family doctor, et cetera, until we find a chemo that's very effective and we are able to increase our ability to diagnose this disease, we're probably going to be hovering around that 9% mark for quite some time. Yes. Okay, that makes sense.
1: So just for the, for the people who are listening, metastasides basically means that it spreads throughout the body. So it's not just in the organ it started with, it's sort of transferring and moving throughout the body, correct?
0: Yeah. Cancer is a systemic disease. Uh, When you operate on an area of cancer, you're often controlling the local environment, but it's a systemic disease, and the cancer cells spread uh, within the lymph nodes and within the blood supply to the organ, and then those cancer cells move throughout the body, oftentimes in a predictable pattern. As I mentioned, in colon cancer... The lymphatics and the blood supply, that is channeled through the liver in terms of how our body processes uh, and recycles our, you know, our toxins and our bloodstream and that sort of thing. So that, that's the reason often why the first place we see metastases or new cancer deposits is in the liver from the colon. Right. That makes sense.
1: We're going to continue with talk about treatments. We talked about some surgery there. We alluded to some chemotherapy. We're going to jump to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Falwell about some of the other treatments that people could expect to go through if they were uh, uh, diagnosed with cancer. But we're going to jump to a break. We'll be right back. I'm here with Dr. Matthew Falwell. He's an oncologist. And Dr. Stephen Quigley, who's a cancer surgeon. We'll be right back.
0: The Health and Wellness Show will be right back on your VOCM. Now back to Dr. Mike Wall. This is the Health and Wellness Show on your BOCM.
1: Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Matthew Falwell, oncologist, and Dr. Stephen Quigley, cancer surgeon. Guys, before the break, we were talking about some of the different types of treatment that people go through when they have cancer. Matt, can you walk us
2: through the other treatments besides surgery that a cancer patient could expect to go through? Right. So uh, obviously outside of the surgical plane, we have chemotherapy or more systemic therapies that are really targeted at anywhere blood supply. Uh, outside of the central nervous system can go the goal is to eradicate or at least reduce the activity of cells that have already spread from the local and the primary area of the cancer Um, probably the biggest change in outcome and change in treatment both for toxicity but also actual uh, outcomes and effectiveness has has been some of the immunotherapy that's been going on over the last decade Uh, there's certain receptors that can be shut off some can be turned on that will essentially help both the chemotherapy uh, work better, potentially be an alternative to melanoma in particular uh, was one of the first ones. It was actually studied by a guy in, uh, in, uh, sorry, Ottawa, Ontario. And that was one of the first studies looking at immune therapy and how actually uh, manipulating that system can improve outcomes in people that were thought to have widely metastatic disease. I'd be amiss not talking about radiation oncology as I'm a radiation oncologist. Uh, Mm -hmm. Depending on the course of uh, where you are in your Disease and what the disease type is, we can either be the primary treatment or act in addition to uh, other therapies like chemotherapy and surgery. Um, Mention a little bit in terms of colorectal cancer, uh, certain things cannot be cut out of certain areas, and if there's something that uh, is in an area of the liver that can't be accessible surgically, there's options from radiation from radiation therapy, but also uh, radiofrequency ablation, literally uh, putting a probe into the lesion and uh, heating it up to kill it. as well as microwave. Um, all these things have been moving forward, and it's really only been in the last decade that we've had real good access to those. Um, so that's been kind of the long and the short of it. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, dealing with uh, primary brain tumors, we once diagnosis is made, uh, radiation as well as an oral form of chemotherapy would be the primary mode of uh, therapy. And then depending on what other body site you're dealing with, the role for radiation can be varying from both going in a curative attempt, but also in terms of palliation, in terms of people's symptoms. And we've talked about survival rates.
1: Right now, these combinations are showing to be effective in helping make lots of types of cancer very treatable. Even the most deadly, like Steve said earlier, pancreatic cancer uh, is showing, you know, significant improvements in treatment. Even if it's got a long ways to go. But guys, we're the health and wellness show. We talked about some of the socioeconomic factors that really are challenging for vulnerable populations. But also, there's risk factors that are inherent to all of us when it comes to our lifestyle. Matt, what are some of the aspects of lifestyle that can impact our risk for getting cancer?
2: Well, obviously the the usual smoking and uh, alcoholic intake, truthfully. Uh, Vaping is still relatively young in terms of that, and the population is often quite young, so the long-term effects related to that would still be uh, not known, and the oncologic or the cancer uh, potential uh, related to that is still unknown. It's kind of interesting considering how much we've done in terms of trying to get people not smoking, that that rolled through relatively easily and uh, engulfed a certain population in our society. As an aside, um, obviously sun care, sun safety, um, good coverage if you can, good SPF at least 30 if you can't, uh, and it's something where that that is that is related to a socioeconomic level of where you may be doing your work, uh, working outside, working more uh, manual-type jobs. Um, as opposed to being able to be inside and covered all day. So it does really come back to a lot of levels back to a
0: socioeconomic factor.
2: Mm-hmm. Exposure and, uh, as well. Mike, if yeah. I could
0: just uh, add in about that, I mean, I think obesity is also a major lifestyle piece that's worth sort of touching on. In dealing with my cancer patients, I definitely see that there's a role that obesity plays, and there's multiple areas of research that point towards obesity leading not only to cancer but poor cancer outcomes.
1: And, you know, I did my PhD looking at obesity-related hormones uh, in Newfoundlanders. And I will tell you that in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have the highest rates of obesity in the country. Do you see that as being a a challenge with the work
0: you do? Oh, it's a a massive challenge. Um, You know... uh, when you're operating for a living, you, you you know every body type responds differently to surgery. And certainly, from a technical aspect, it's much more challenging in an obese patient. And often getting people through the post-operative course when they have obesity is much more challenging. They run into wound infections, hernias, immediately post-operatively we see a harder time with people and their respiratory system uh, post-operatively if they have truncal or abdominal obesity so there's a direct impact on a pre-intra and post-operative management perspective. Hmm.
1: That's interesting and you know we're seeing that obesity and diabetes for example are some of the biggest risk factors for COVID-19 too things that people would not have thought to be associated with conditions but you know these are the types of things that people need to think about is that you're not just trying to lose weight because of the reasons we've been told in the media, but these actually have some real impacts on our outcomes when it comes to the likelihood of getting sick, but also your recovery. Let's talk about some other things here. So guys, you know, what about the role of of diet and exercise? In particular, I think nutrition has to play a huge role in in cancer. Uh, Matt, do you want to take that one?
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, that's a great point, Mike. It's something that brings up, all the things you're talking about in terms of marginalized societies or racialized societies or socioeconomically isolated groups, it's something where um, people may just not even have the time to be able to cook a meal. Uh, they may not have the time to be able to get their 20 minutes of good exercise a day. So so purely a financial barrier to people actually staying healthy. Uh, and I saw, without a doubt, uh, impacts both their access
0: to health care, uh, but also, as Steve mentioned, their outcomes associated with developing right and see you know for sure i mean if there's any patients of mine that are out there listening i think they've probably heard my spiel on this a number of times at the clinic but essentially you know when i t- sign people up for surgery usually it's for marathon type surgery you know operations that take 8 9 12 hours and often with cancer cachexia or cancer weight loss on board they're in a protein you know in a deficient state and so i tell people they have to you know, increase their protein in their diet, increase their healthy food intake, you know, really work at looking at nutrition as sort of king for getting through this problem. In addition, you know, I, I request of my patients to do 20 to 30 minutes of physical ac- activity every day leading up, you know, before and after surgery. Uh, and there's many studies that show that even 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes of exercise before a major operation can lead to uh, decreased length of stay and improved outcomes with decreased complications. So the point of nutrition and exercise and how it relates to both physical and mental well-being heading into a major operation is not something I take lightly. Right.
1: Okay. So right onto that, and not only surgery, but Matt, you talked about other forms of treatment. How is somebody coming in strong? How would they fare? Uh, what, how would
2: they fare better, I guess, if Compared to somebody out more the Without a doubt, it, uh, try to keep people doing as much they want to be doing as possible. Uh, don't necessarily let a disease define you. Um, there's obviously things that you have to avoid in terms of risks if your immune system is compromised through the various chemotherapies and other treatments. But the more you can keep people doing their day-to-day and what they actually want to be doing, they'll be more compliant with treatment. They'll get through it often a little better. And it's something where as long as we get through the appropriate treatments, the outcomes should be as, as we expect. But if there's any barriers to any of those steps along the way, people will have worse outcomes. Right.
1: And we're going to jump through it very quickly, but Stevie hit something I think is really, really important. You said the mental health aspect going into, into this.
2: How does that play a role?
0: You know, I think I tell all of my patients that, you know, I always try to remain as optimistic as possible with a cancer diagnosis. There's a delicate balance there to walk between optimism and sort of, you know, giving someone false hope. But we talk very openly and frankly about, you know, some people are numbers people. They want the stats. They want the numbers. Some people uh, are more are happier just to sort of know the overall uh, kind of big picture sort of stuff. But From what I have seen, and this is more anecdotally than anything, because I don't think there's any studies that I'm aware of that have looked at this, but when people come into an illness with a positive attitude and with the right mindset, they, they approach the challenges and they approach the obstacles a little bit differently. They seem to get through it a little bit better. Obviously, you know, you can't, you know, will cancer to kind of go away. But I've certainly seen that people's outlook certainly makes a difference in terms of how long they stay in hospital after an operation and how they return to their activities of daily living quickly. They return to those uh, post-operatively.
1: Excellent. Excellent. That's great advice. Guys, we're going to jump to a break. I'm here with Dr. Matthew Falwell. He's an oncologist and Dr. Steve Quigley. He's a cancer surgeon. We'll be right back.
0: The Health and Wellness Show will be right back on your VOCM. Woo! Now back to Dr. Mike Wall. This is the Health and Wellness Show Woo! on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back. to is Dr. Steve Quigley. He's a pancreatic and liver cancer surgeon and Dr. Matthew Falwell. Chief of Oncology at the Simcoe Muskoka Cancer Center in Barrie, Ontario. Guys, uh, we finished the last thing talking about what we can do for our health to make sure that we can, uh, number one, avoid getting a cancer diagnosis, but secondly, if we are facing that really big challenge, then how can we get through it uh, easier by being healthy, I think we have some great things about exercise there, having a good mental mindset, and even controlling our weight, which we wouldn't have thought of. But what are some things that are sort of new and exciting when it comes to the future of cancer research, Matt?
2: Uh, from the radiation oncology side of things, uh, essentially the treatment planning and deliveries has been revolutionized, obviously with the uh, improvement of computing power, truthfully, as a big part of that, um, but also the general approach to delivering treatment increasing the amount of radiation that you can deliver to an area safely, um, more accurately, uh, day-to-day and even during breathing cycles, for example. You can follow a lung tumor uh, as it moves during a inspiration or expiration breath phase. Um, so it's something where really the technological part of it has really improved from the, the systemic management of things uh, mentioned before in terms of more tailored chemotherapies, but also immune therapies that are really aimed at targeting specific uh, pathways within different cancer cells to essentially improve outcomes in a situation that would not have happened in the past.
1: Steve, you talked earlier about a cancer that I know an awful lot about. For those of you listening who don't know, my father passed away of pancreatic cancer, and when he got given the diagnosis, it was it was really a death sentence. He had less than 5% survival rate chance after five years, and that wasn't looking at the, the longer horizon. So we knew that time was quite limited, but... You said earlier that you've almost doubled the survival rate with that. What are some things that you're seeing on even some of these most deadly cancers?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, one of the things that's really uh, made a difference is obviously we're, we're researching this pancreatic cancer much more extensively and trying to figure out ways to target our therapies. Where I trained in the U.S., we were giving people chemotherapy upfront before they underwent a surgical resection. And so this uh, has shown, I mean, essentially, the way that this sort the thought that this works is that it it one, it tests the biology of the tumor. So if you have someone present with a pancreatic cancer and you give them chemotherapy, you can actually potentially save them from a major operation if if that was never going to help them sort of with their overall long-term survival. So it allows us to sort of learn about the cancer biology. But really what it does is it goes back to the systemic and local discussion that I was having earlier. Cancer is truly a systemic disease. My role in the surgical side of things is to control the local area or the area where the tumor is located and removing it. But the real crux of treatment is the uh, systemic treatment, i.e. the chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so by giving people upfront chemotherapy, we're actually starting their treatment process right away. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know the reality of the situation is I don't know if your dad had surgery or not but when you undergo a major operation like that a number of uh, complications can arise and if you end up being in hospital for slightly longer than expected or you have a major complication or you have some major uh, issues post-operatively you may never reach a health state where you can be you can receive chemo again so then you do not get the systemic treatment for your disease so giving people chemotherapy up front not only tests the tumor but in some ways it tests the strength of the individual and it tests the body's ability to uh, receive some of that systemic treatment before undergoing a major marathon operation right
1: yeah no in his case he wasn't able to but he did go through chemo and, and he was and he did uh do quite well considering that the prognosis with it Guys, you know, there's a couple of things uh, in Newfoundland in particular. We've got a very rare form of stomach cancer. They've been able to find genetic markers that can predict if people are going to be likely to develop this cancer. and People can preemptively remove their stomach and avoid uh, a terminal disease. Where do we see ourselves in 10 years, Matt?
2: I think that's continuing to evolve, Mike. It's somewhere, obviously, there's a lot of good research in uh, breast cancers and the BRCA gene. Uh, breast, ovarian, and sometimes even pancreatic cancers. Um, there's some that uh, Steve mentioned related to certain colon cancers. Um, I think it's, A, doing a good family history and knowing actually what's going on in terms of what's happened in someone's past, if possible, if not. Um, and that comes back to primary care, too. Uh, how do you risk stratify people? How do you get the right people getting the right test at the right time? So I, th- I think that really does come down to primary care and knowing that people are asking the right questions. I think it's going to be more targeted in terms of individual tumor assessments. Um, we have access to essentially genetic uh, tumor marking and makeup uh, associated with certain breast cancers to help guide and essentially de-escalate treatment uh, when it won't be favorable in terms of their changing their outcome. And that avoids toxicity, it avoids time and it avoids uh, uh, long-term issues associated with the treatment they may not have needed. So I think it's more and more related to the individual persons, not just cancers, how are we diagnose to begin with. I was, was going to mention some of the, the, the potential positives in terms of access for people related to what's happened with COVID is the amount of virtual care that's going on. Uh, it's something where yeah, our is completely changed. Um, and, and really it forces you to look at who needs to actually travel to get yeah. opinions, discussions about things. It has a lot to do with how um, physicians are often paid, unfortunately, initially. Um, but taking that part out of it and being at, Essentially, normal getting people as little as possible out of their normal day to day, and and really only seeing the people that need to be seen. Obviously, the people that are on treatment well, that have to be there for the for the time frame. But how do you keep that experience and exposure really as little as possible that doesn't
0: need to be happening?
2: Yeah, I mean, this patient-
0: revolutionize the way that we're going to treat patients here. Like, I mean, I call you know thirty to forty people a week, whereas before they were coming into the office for a recheck, and it's completely unnecessary. You're completely correct.
1: Mm. Well, that's good. And that's going to be a solution for our rural population, particularly here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So,
0: Video conference will be huge. Okay, so how do people that want
1: to not only improve their health literacy like we're doing here today, but may actually want to take an active role in supporting cancer and cancer research? Uh, Steve, what are, what are some tips you would give people? Because there's so many options for people to, to donate to and support cancer in their own ways. What would be some ways that you would, you would advise people?
0: You know, I mean, I think any time that you can get involved in any national or international uh, fundraising efforts, uh, that's great. Obviously, at a local level, we are starting to build our and hoping to build uh, uh, our pancreatic uh, cancer profile here. Uh, Mike and I, you know, we've had many discussions about this and how we want to. Uh, you know, build a community and build funds for uh, people within the province of Newfoundland and Labrador that are experiencing pancreatic cancer diagnosis. I think that could be extended to any other type of cancer as well. Um, I always refer all of my patients, you know, there's a lot of good and bad information on the internet. I always refer all of my patients to the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, um that is a group of non-for-profit organization that essentially links people up with clinical trials across the world and pancreatic cancer experts and even just has someone available twenty-four hours a day that can talk to you and talk to you about your cancer experience. So there's lots of things that are available out there. I think strictly from a fundraising standpoint, I think, you know, the Canadian Cancer Society, the CIBC Run for the Cure. And any, you know, any of those, uh, you know, national level uh, organizations uh, are certainly trying to work at the, you know, grassroots level of, of research to try to make differences for patients and patient survival. Awesome.
1: Yeah. And locally, we've got Daffodil Place and the Canadian Cancer Society and there's Young Adult Cancer Canada, Shape for the Brave.
2: So, yeah, there's definitely some, some good ones. What about you, Matt? What would you recommend for people to, to think about? Well, I think it's important for people who are doing like you're doing, Mike. You're talking about your personal experience. I think that that uh, goes beyond value um, because it humanizes it. It shows that it's not necessarily scary. You can talk about it, like you're talking about your dad. Um, it's something where, also locally, I sit on the uh, foundation board for the uh, hospital here at uh, Barry um, as a physician liaison, trying to get people more engaged from the physician side of things to do things like this, for example. Um, but also just to be out in the community and really building the local and support the local uh, development of the healthcare system here. And it's not just the hospital. And it goes right back to primary care. Like, how can we support people uh, in your own backyard? Uh, keep the money where it is and where you know it's going to be used. Um, and really try to support the locals when it
1: comes down to it. Well, we are winding up here, guys. But I got to say, this is a great chat. Uh, we talked about a lot of things. It's kind of a difficult conversation today when you're talking about cancer but I think it's really important for people to hear. It. Thank you so much for both, uh, both of you for being here today.
0: No problem. Thanks for having me.
2: My pleasure, Mike, anytime. All the best That's to the great. beautiful people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, we have to come back for a visit now, as soon as we're allowed to travel again. You know All it. got right, you know it. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much, guys. Uh, I was here with Dr. Steve Quigley, he's a liver and pancreatic surgeon at Eastern Health, and Dr. Matthew Falwell, he is the chief of oncology at the Simcoe Muskoka Regional Cancer Program in Barrie, Ontario. That's the show today, guys. We'll see you again same time next week for another health and wellness topic on your VLCM.